Welcome to podcasts recorded live at the Center for Spiritual Living in Portland, Oregon. Listen past the end of the podcast to find out more about our spiritual center and ways that you may collaborate with us. Good morning again. So last week, Reverend Larry began this month's topic, which is exploring philosophy. Since science of mind is considered to be a philosophy, as well as a religion and a way of life, but we rarely talk about the philosophical aspect on Sunday. So we're using this book, Does Santa Exist? by Eric Kaplan. And last week, Reverend Larry spoke about the logical approach to this question, and today I'm going to explore the mystical. So let's start with some definitions to kind of get on the same page. So philosophy is a word that comes from the Greek and it means love of wisdom. And if you read in college or high school even, Socrates and Plato, those were obviously philosophers, Greek philosophers. And basically, uh, philosophy is the study of the fundamental nature or knowledge of reality, of existence itself. And metaphysics is a branch of philosophy and means beyond the physical. We are a metaphysical philosophy. What we teach is science of mind, which again is a metaphysical philosophy created by the founder of our um, teaching, uh, Ernest Holmes. So as we begin to look at this topic, does Santa exist from a mystical viewpoint? Let's start with another definition, that of a mystic. So basically, there isn't anything mysterious about a mystic. It's simply someone who claims to attain or believes in the possibility of attaining insights into the mysteries transcending ordinary human knowledge. In other words, a mystic is someone who has a personal experience of unity, of his or her unity with the infinite mystery of life. Mysticism then is the belief that union with or absorption into the absolute can be attained uh, through contemplation, surrender, self-surrender, or that the mystery can be explained, which is sort of an oxymoron, it's a mystery. So (laughs) by its very nature and definition, you can't explain what the mystery is. But we keep trying, don't we keep trying? And so from ancient times to the present, human beings, like I said, continue to have mystical, we all have mystical experiences, almost everyone does. But we try to explain it in a rational way, and Larry Larry tried last week. He did a pretty good job of trying, too. Um, (laughs) But I'm going to share with you today my mystical, one of my mystical experiences, the most important one for me. I'm uh, writing a a little book called Postcards from God. I've been doing so for quite a while. Eventually, I'll get it finished. And this is one of the stories from this book. And it's going to be a series of short stories um, telling about how I personally learned some of the qualities that we speak of, uh, joy, harmony, peace, peace. integrity, those kinds of things. And each one of them begins with a postcard from God. When I was a little girl, my father was a salesman on the road, and he would send me postcards from all these wonderful places. And and so I thought that would be a good thing since God is everywhere, <laughs> been everywhere, done all of it, you know, might send us a postcard now and again to give us a clue about what we're doing here. So... <clears throat> So um, the first one, this is the one on love. 
and this is the postcard, my beloved one, knowing your passport is always open to being in love, I have made a reservation for you at a great new spa. Giving and receiving are their specialties, and you are welcome 24-7. You must believe it to experience it. Hugs and kisses, God. It was an ordinary day, one of the many Tuesdays or Wednesdays that pass by unnoticed through the years, but this particular day would eventually turn out to be the most important of my life. I had an appointment with Steve for a haircut. As he was such a ray of sunshine, I always looked forward to seeing him. Simply to be in his presence lifted my spirits. He paid attention and listened with such focused intensity, I always felt I was the most important person in his entire life at that moment. When I entered the salon, I could easily see Steve wasn't there. His partner Dave came directly up to me and said, Hi, Lynn, good to see you. Steve couldn't be here today, so I'll be doing your hair. That's okay. Come over to the chair. And he turned and walked toward the station at the back of the room. As we walked, I said, is Steve okay? Did he return from his visit with his family in Seattle? I sat in the chair. Dave draped the black smock over me, fastening two ends together at the back of my neck. No, he returned from his parents last week, but he's in the hospital again. Again? I said, I had no idea he was in the hospital before. Yes, Lynn, Steve has AIDS. A shiver went down my spine. I felt sick in my heart as well as my stomach. At that time, AIDS was practically a death warrant. Finally, I said, oh, Dave, I'm so very sorry. How are you doing? They had been a couple for almost 14 years. I'm just taking it one day at a time, going to work, then to the hospital and back again. This is one of the worst episodes he's had in a long time. We thought he was getting better with the new drugs, but his words trailed off. The silence was palpable. We each appeared to be searching for some meaning for Steve's illness. If there was one, it eluded both of us at the time. I didn't know what to say and felt very inadequate at providing even a little bit of comfort to Dave. Eventually, I asked, what hospital is Steve in and can he have visitors? I would really like to go see him if it's okay. Steve would love to have you visit him, Lynn. He's in Santa Rosa Memorial. Probably should call ahead, though, just in case he's asleep or having tests or something. I'll go when we're finished, Dave. Can I use your phone to call the hospital? There was an inner urgency pulling me forward. The momentum surprised me. I was the kind of person who did not go to hospitals to see anyone. People I loved died in hospitals, so I just stopped going to them. (laughs) But for some indescribable reason, I was propelled to go see Steve. We were not even that close. He was my hairdresser. I arrived at the hospital about 11.15 that morning. Steve's room was in a corner and was slightly larger than the 12 by 15 cubicles lining the outer walls. His room was a florist shop. Hundreds of plants, flowers, bouquets, cards covered every flat surface as well as most of the floor. I had never seen so many flowers in one place in my life. The lower half of the bed was even covered with a quilt that looked handmade. Steve was sitting up. He looked thin, gaunt, and pale, but his energy was still just as big. Lynn, get yourself over here right now. He was almost yelling. Sit down on the bed next to me, and he patted the edge of the blanket next with his hand. Hi, Steve. Did you have Dave buy out a florist shop? Aren't they all amazing? When you leave, you have to take one with you. I'm giving them all away to people who come and visit. But you'll be here for a while, so I hope you don't have anywhere to go. 
I leaned down and gave him a quick kiss in the cheek, then settled on the edge of the bed. He handed me a book. This is a fantastic book on China. I want you to read it to me, please. My eyesight is affected and I can't see very good, but I'm going to China when I get well and I want to know what I'm looking at, okay? Sure, I said, I'd be glad to read to you. I just might learn something myself. And I began to read out of his book. An hour or so later, I noticed he had fallen asleep, quietly gathering my purse and jacket. I put the book down on the removable tray. For a moment, I just looked at him, at his handsome, sweet, kind, and so full of life self, and sent as much love as I could muster from my heart to his. I left the hospital. Settling into my car, I turned on the engine and slowly backed out of the parking lot. From that moment on, I do not remember anything at all until my car exited the freeway on the ramp to Healdsburg, 14 miles north. During this entire journey, I was immersed in and surrounded by a luminescence that was everywhere. It was light and bright and it had no edges, just seemed to go on and on forever. I had absolutely no perception or awareness of physical form. Me, the seat, the car, the land, nothing just a warm, bright immersion in an intense and complete love. Yes, somehow I knew it was love. The feeling sense of it was tangible, almost thick in a way. There was no sound or any sense of movement at all, complete and utter immersion in oneness. I was literally whatever it was, and it was me. My awareness was of being in a state of bliss and utter safety. It was powerful. There was no separation at all between what it was and what I was. We were one glowing energy of love, quite literally a bubble of love. As soon as my car drove down the exit ramp, that quote bubble disappeared. I was me again, alone in the car and mystified. Instantly I began to cry. I pulled over to the side, stopped the car and sobbed. I wanted whatever it was to return. I felt all by myself again, and yet, deep inside, I knew I wasn't. Love was who I was. Oh my, was this really true? I had to find out. My very intentional and conscious search for love began that day. Not the romantic, idealized book-movie kind of love, but real love. The love that is everywhere and in everyone. What I have come to believe is that love is the literal creative force of the universe itself. What initiated this awakening, the only thing I can think of is going to see Steve, was the first time I actually did not think at all about myself. My only intention was to bring him some small bit of kindness as he had been so kind to me. This sounds too simple, doesn't it? but my motivation honestly had no hidden agenda, which is usually, it usually it did by my past good deeds. Previously, my thoughts would have sounded something like, well, you'd better bring some nice flowers. Don't go empty-handed. What he thinks of you is important. Remember your manners. Quite honestly, I feel any attempt to verbally describe what was indescribable does not even begin to lend credence to the power of this experience. What was shattered by this revelation is the illusion that there is an I separate from you. In the true reality of life, there is only love, nothing else. So.
thank you for liking my story. So in looking at science of mind with the definitions of philosophy, metaphysics, and mysticism in mind, it definitely all fits. Ernest Holmes was a mystic, don't you think? If you've read any of his writings. And we continue to teach this metaphysical philosophy in spiritual centers all over the world. If we look at some of the ancient mystical teachings, we must begin with the Upanishads, the Hindu sacred text that delves into the realm of existence itself. And this is uh, a few lines from the Upanishads. Self is not born, nor dies, is not from anywhere, nor was it ever anyone, unborn, everlasting, primeval, eternal, it is not slain when the body is slain. So how do we get this thing called self? Not by thinking, not by thinking. We cannot think our way into being. As much as Ernest Holmes and our teaching is about thought, we cannot think our way into this. What we can do is we can set an intention to know life, to know spirit, to put ourselves in a frame of mind or a way of living that is more likely to have it show up. As I suggested in my talk a few weeks ago, we can begin to make life welcome. Truly make it welcome just as it is right now, right in this moment, with all of us sitting right here. This is it. This is it. This is as good as it gets, as great as it gets. This is it. And isn't it grand? Isn't it just grand that we're all here together? Oh my God, what a celebration is that? Anyway, um, so we, we have all these ideas about the way life is supposed to show up, don't we? We want it to be this way. We want it to be that way. And so every time we have an idea or an opinion or a judgment or whatever it is that takes us away from this grand moment that we're having right now, we set ourselves apart from it. So how can we be immersed in it if we're apart from it? We can't. It's impossible. Just as my little experience was impossible. So what we have to do is get ourselves out of the way. We have to get our little, finite minds into a place of expansion to know, to really begin, no, we can't even know, but to expand the idea that we could possibly entertain the idea of what infinite means. I mean, we can't even imagine how far it is from here to California, you know? <laughs> so how can you even begin to grasp the idea of what infinite? Infinite, we throw beyond these words around unlimited. What does unlimited mean? Unlimited mean that we can, you know, maybe take a trip to Miami. You know, what is, oh no, we're going to expand. We're going to go to Hawaii or maybe we're going to go to Chile or somewhere. You know, that's as far as we can get. But unlimited, oh my Lord, what is unlimited? In my next lifetime, I don't want to come back as me. That's too limiting. Maybe next lifetime I'll come back as a, as a robot. Maybe I'll come back as just a thought. Maybe I'll come back as who knows what. Maybe I won't come back as all. Maybe I'll just go from universe to universe and, and figure out what's going on there. I mean, unlimited is truly unlimited and infinite impossibilities. So we must get out of our own way. We just must. Another suggestion is to let go of our attachment to or idolatry of all those false gods. 
such as cell phones. <laughs> That's a real hard one, isn't it? You know, computers, television, sex, ooh, opinions, <laughs> drugs, shopping, our mates, our jobs, anything that we think provides us with some sense of security or identity that we already don't have. Anything, anything at all. We can't not decide to become a mystic. You can't just make a decision. Well, I think tomorrow I'm going to be a mystic. I think that's going to be a goal I'm going to achieve. It's not like becoming a chiropractor. I mean, it just doesn't work that way. The universe doesn't work that way. So then there is the idea of contradiction, which shows up in all of the sacred writings. And even though language seems to be our common way of attempting to express the inexpressible, we keep trying. For example, the Hindus believe that all is the self. I love Hinduism because of that. You know, they have a God of everything, everything and anything. Whatever it is that you like, it's, there's God. Buddhists, however, believe the self is an illusion. The Tao, which is the way, another ancient te teaching, a guide to personal enlightenment, or the higher self. Christianity, as Jesus taught metaphysics, but only those with ears to hear actually lived his teaching. And then Ernest Holmes, of course, says, consciousness is all. The following examples really explain the mystic mentality following the logic of the Tao Te Ching. Now, how many of you are familiar with the Tao? Have you read the Tao? Isn't it lovely? It's just lovely. See, all mystics in, in, in school, graduate school. Okay, the Tao that can be spoken is not the eternal Tao. The name that can be named is not the eternal name. The nameless is the origin of heaven and earth. The named is the mother of myriad things. Or again, from the Upanishads, from his book that we've been reading. It moves, it does not move. It is far and near, likewise. It is inside of all of this. It is outside all of this. Not only is reality contradictory, but so is the process of coming to know about it. It is thought of by the one to whom it is unthought. The one by whom it is thought of, he does not know. It is not understood by the understander. It is understood by those who do not understand. How are we doing so far? <laughs> So life itself is a mystery. So in essence, everyone is a potential mystic. In truth, we all live in the contradic contradictory nature of life almost every moment of every day. Our perceptions of life and its mystery makes up our mind for us even before we get out of bed. It is possible and even probable that the understanding and experience of life itself has many, many contradictions or paradoxes and those invite us to open our minds even further. And can we live with those paradoxes? Can we live with those contradictions? Can we be comfortable with them? If you look at your own life, 
Have you not questioned your beliefs? And then when you logically know something is true, and yet a part of you deep inside also believes that the opposite is true? I'm sure everybody has had that experience. When I was active in my addiction to alcohol, for example, when my belief that I would not know how to do anything without alcohol kept me a prisoner in the addiction, kind of like Plato's cave, um, the people in the cave, I was truly terrified, just terrified about letting go of my use of alcohol. But when I finally, out of sheer desperation to live, finally let go into the not knowing, a whole new and wonderful world opened up and I was set free. But what I really wanted up to that point was, I wanted a script. I wanted a how-to. If I do this, then this is gonna happen. If I, if I give up the alcohol, then A is gonna happen, B is gonna happen, C is gonna happen. I wanted to know exactly. I wanted, it to, I wanted to control what was gonna happen. Any of you have issues with controlling things in your life? <laughs> I know I'm not alone, I know I'm not. <laughs> But I wanted that. I wanted, for some reason, I thought that if I knew what was going to happen next, it would give me a sense of, of safety, that I could let go of this crutch, that I could let go of what was keeping me bound to this prison that I had made. But I wanted to know, if I let go of that, what, would, what goody was I going to get on the other side? And I finally just out of desperation said, oh, I don't care what it is. You know, I'll, I'll do it, whatever it is. Oh, my God. Then I became free. I became free in, in one shift and change in my own thinking. One shift. That was all it took. So like the character of Scrooge, no matter how easy one makes the explanation as to how to experience more love or more joy or more generosity, more life, it will not happen until there's a shift in consciousness in order for the person to have ears to hear. In the Bhagavad Gita, or called the Gita, the Hindu story depicting man's struggle with paradoxes of life through a dialogue between a soldier and God during a fictional war. It says, quote, but verily thou art not able to behold me with these eyes, human eyes, the divine eye I give unto thee. Spiritual things must be spiritually discerned. The release of suffering, for instance, in Buddhism will not happen with an understanding of the words. Just to understand that suffering keeps people bound in their suffering doesn't make them all of a sudden decide not to suffer anymore. The same is true of science of mind. Coming on Sunday is not enough. Taking a class is not enough. Reading the text, even though Ernest repeats himself every other page, <laughs> So that maybe you'll get it, you know. I mean, I finally figured that out because he would keep saying the same. Didn't he just say that four pages before? Yes, he did, but he's saying it a different way. So maybe this time those ears will open up. Maybe, maybe sometime there'll be there'll there'll be a connection, and, and and you'll get it. And I kept reading and being more confused and all of that. But eventually, over time, keep practicing, we get it. In our uh, ministerial program, uh, it's necessary for you to have a student who wants to go into the ministerial school to be um, 
to have an interview um, with a panel to decide if you're eligible to go to school. And uh, on my panel, the particular year that I had my interview, uh, one of the people on my panel was Margaret Stortz, a woman named Margaret Stortz. And Margaret Stortz was uh, the president of the whole organization at the time, and she was rather a formidable character. She was little. She was about five feet tall. We called her the Queen Mum. And um, she said to me, how long have you been in Science of Mind? And I said, oh, about four, four years or so. And she said, well, you're almost cooked. And I said, well, what does that mean? And she said, well, in her experience, it takes about seven years for science of mind to get in a person, to go from here to here. And that means practicing all the time, practicing, because it isn't enough just to get it here. And it's been my experience as well. It takes about seven years for it to get in here. So mystics tend to be, as a general rule, optimists. They believe life is good. They believe everything is a manifestation of an ultimate and amazing reality. So that definitely makes Ernest Holmes a mystic, if you've read Ernest Holmes. He definitely was a mystic. Oh, and here's the joke. Larry always has a joke. This, okay, since Hanukkah was yesterday and we're at Christmas and all of that. Four Jews changed the way we see life. The first, Moses. He said, the law is everything. Then there was Jesus. Jesus said, love is everything. Then there was Marx. Marx said, money is everything. Then came Freud. Sex is everything. (laughs) Then came Einstein. (laughs) Everything is relative. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, thanks, you got it. First service had trouble with it. So, what about you? Would you define yourself more as a mystic or a realist? Maybe a little of both? Then for you, Santa would both exist and not exist, and you would be quite comfortable living with the contradiction. I remember once when I was living in Texas, I was dating a man who was very exasperated with me, and he wanted me to be more consistent. And I remember saying to him, but I am. I am just consistently inconsistent. So if you are a mystic, the following traits would be yours. Number one, you believe life is good. You are comfortable living in the unknown of the present moment. Remember how grand this moment is? You are unlikely to focus on the past, either what was good about it or what was not good about it. You can readily know what is possible in any given situation. You can maintain a positive view of the future regardless of what appears now. You have the ability to live in awe. You are comfortable with change. You view yourself as part of a greater whole. You follow inner wisdom and learn from other expressions. You appreciate life just as it is. So once again, to quote from Kaplan in his fun little book, At this point, I feel like my dog when he spots his tail and decides to give chase. Although I've run and run fast, I haven't caught a thing. We started with two voices in conflict about Santa Claus. Voice one, there is Santa Claus. 
voice too. There is, ain't no Santa Claus. And this pattern has come back again, only at a higher level. Voice 1B, get yourself, get yourself out of the fight between voice 1 and voice 2 by figuring out which one is right by using logic. Voice 2B, don't worry about the fight between voice 1 and voice 2. Embrace the fact that reality is contradictory. Be a mystic. <laughs> So again, you're quite content, if you are a mystic, to believe that Santa does exist and does not exist, and you're perfectly happy with, with your choices, one or the other. Hmm. So my friend Steve, my friend Steve didn't go to China. He made his transition shortly after I visited him. So let us pray. Hmm. So we breathe into the possibility. We breathe into that place of knowing, knowing at the innermost center of our being that the only thing that exists is God, spirit, that one life that is in all, as all, expressing itself magnificently through and as us. Through and as that expression, the container, this physical form that it has created to contain its unlimited spirit. And so I affirm that this presence within me is filled with good, filled with light and life and joy and love. And as I affirm this for myself, I affirm this for each person here today, there is absolutely no separation, none whatsoever, between who each one is and who the infinite is, what the infinite is. We are all connected, absolutely connected, in ways that we cannot even begin to comprehend. And so I claim and accept for each one of us just a slight opening, a shift maybe that takes place in consciousness today that says, yes, there is a possibility bigger than I am and I'm willing to embrace it. There is an unlimited potential that lives within my own heart and I'm willing, willing to take a step toward that not knowing. Even if it's scary, I'm going to do it anyway. For I know that I have that spirit within me that is nudging me, standing right next to me, saying, go for it. And so I am knowing for each one of us the courage, this the sheer courage, to step into our own greatness, to step into that which we know is our potential living inside of us, and let go of all fear, all doubt, all concern, for it is just simply really nothing but a thought. And so in gratitude, knowing and affirming that each one of us does take that next step into our own initial greatness with love, with light, with joy, saying yes to the possibilities that exist for us that we have not even a clue, and be willing to go into that place with an open heart and an open mind. And so in gratitude, knowing this is absolutely the truth with a capital T, <laughs> or maybe not, I just... <laughs> Release my word, I let it be so, and so it is. And so it is. Uh, namaste. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you happen to be in the Portland, Oregon area, we'd love to have you visit in person. The Portland Center for Spiritual Living is located at 6211 Northeast Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard. We have inspirational services at 9 and 11 a.m. every Sunday. 
Our mission is to open hearts, ignite minds, and to make a difference. If you'd like to support our center and its podcasts, you can donate online at www.pcsl.us donate. Our website is also the place to learn more about what's going on at the center or to contact us. Allow us to become part of your extended community. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey, you are most welcome at the Center for Spiritual Living.